0: to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Good morning, everybody. How are you? What a beautiful day. So nice in here compared to last two weeks. I I think I'm only have to go through one shirt today because uh, last week I went through an entire wardrobe of shirts. Um, But it's great to be here this morning. I am excited to uh, have the opportunity to uh, share God's word with you. My name is Matt Harris. I am one of the pastors here serving alongside Stephen and Matt. Uh, It is a privilege to serve with these brothers. They are, you guys are so lucky to have these people leading you. Um, they are just amazing. We, I've, I've worked with them in really good, good times and really bad times, and there's no one better. So we're, I'm thankful for that. Um, I want to be bringing you the, this word uh, from the Book of James. Um, first, let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask you to be uh, with us this morning as we open your Word, as we uh, as we try to discern through your Spirit the the wisdom that is in this book, the wisdom from James, the brother of Jesus who uh, saw so much and lived so much and shared so much. Father, I ask that you would equip us to, to hear those words and to take them to heart. And Father, especially, I ask that you would get me out of the way and have your your truth and your, your wisdom come through so powerfully, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I love the book of James. James, he doesn't seem like he certainly doesn't seem like an Old Testament author. And he almost doesn't seem like a New Testament author. I mean, I read James and it's like I'm reading Yancey or Keller or Piper. He's so contemporary and so clear. It's been said that in, in biblical study, a lot of times you, you read the Bible and then you look for parallel verses throughout the Bible to sort of confirm what's, that, that you're seeing the same concept in multiple places. And James, it's a little unusual because a lot of James is just on its own. It's by itself, but it's contemporary. It's, it's simple. It's direct. You don't, have to, you don't have to sort of look for hidden meanings too much. So what we hear from James is just, is just right there. James was also the brother of Christ. He, he grew up throwing stones in the, in the sea and working in the father's shop with our savior, Jesus. Yet, Jesus was his Lord. James was a leader and a mediator, an encourager and a mentor. This book of James is such a gift to us that we can hear directly from an apostle who grew up with James and witnessed the life, death and resurrection of his Lord. And as we read these verses, it's abundantly clear that they are about prayer. Prayer for those suffering, prayer for those who are sick, prayer offered in total faith prayer for those who confess sin and seek healing and forgiveness. But what is in between the lines of these verses is that while faithful prayer should be offered by God's children, answers to those prayers may not always be as we expect. Now I don't need to tell you that God is not a prayer vending machine. We should know that we can't just go to God, submit our prayer for healing press E4 and it drops out of the bottom of the box, or our prayer for for recovery, or our prayer for a relationship. It doesn't work that way. We bring our prayers in faith and we give them to God, and it's up to God how that comes about. I wanna tell you a story that happened just this summer. Many of you know that Sue and I, my wife Sue, who just read scripture, we love sailing. We went sailing just yesterday with a couple of folks here in the church, and it was a blast. Um, this summer was going to be a big sailing summer. I had on my bucket list that I was going to sail my boat from Boston all the way down through Cape Cod into Buzzards Bay and sail around and bring it back and take like two weeks to do this. It was going to be so much fun, and it was. But now Sue and I, we are planners, okay? And we had some general itineraries set up wondering if there, are there any slides today? Hey Matt, are there any slides? Nope, okay, we're no slides. I'm going to draw pictures with my fingers. So the map of Massachusetts, you all kind of know, it's kind of long and then it's got Cape Cod that runs out like an arm and then on the south side of Massachusetts is this beautiful body of water called Buzzards Bay and we went down there and we visited Sandwich right on the Cape Cod Canal. We went through, we went to Woods Hole and Falmouth. We stopped at Cuddyhunk, Mattapoisett, Paddenarum, and Wareham. Now, the town of Padanaram might have a familiar ring to it, right? Padanaram is a coastal town in South Dartmouth, Massachusetts. And the name Paddenarum comes from a prominent early resident of that town named Laban Thatcher. And this guy actually identified with Laban from the Old Testament. And you may recall that in Genesis, Laban tricked Jacob into working for seven years and then marrying his elder daughter, Leah, instead of his heart's desire, Rachel. Jacob then took Rachel as his second wife by promising to work another seven years. I'm not sure about this modern Laban Thatcher in Padenarum, Dartmouth, Massachusetts. I'm not sure why he identified with Laban of the Old Testament, and I bet he was a pretty interesting character to get to know. Anyway, Sue and I, we had a plan to leave Mattapoisett and sail a couple of hours west to Padenarum, known for its sheltered harbors and beautiful scenery and nice restaurants, and overall a very yachty type of an environment. It's kind of the holy grail of Buzzards Bay yachting. We cast off our mooring in Mattapois and he- headed out, and as we went, the wind and the waves started to build up a little more than I expected them to. But we kept looking forward to our safe harbor in Padanaram. But the wind and the seas kept building, and we found ourselves in small craft warnings and winds about 15 knots with gusts even higher, and waves that were getting pretty big and starting to break over the bow of our boat. Well, we kept at it for a few hours, interspersed with calm and intentional prayers that we would make enough progress to get to Paganarium, our destination. But after about three hours, the navigator and me decided, after looking at my GPS, we really weren't making any progress. We were just kind of going back and forth, but not getting where we wanted to go. So tail between our legs, we turned around and headed back to the safe harbor of Matapoiset. disappointed and we really wanted to get to Paden Aram. We thought that would be the best plan for us. We were praying and asking God to allow us to arrive in Paden Aram safely. He didn't give us what we prayed for. Instead, he humbled us and returned us to safety. So here's the thing. I had booked an Airbnb in Paden thinking that it would be really nice to be there for a few days, but not sleep on this little boat and sleep in a nice bed with air conditioning and stuff. but I had made a pretty bad mistake in my planning. The Airbnb I booked in Peyton Aram was nowhere near Peyton Arum. I had messed up big time. It was much closer to Matapoiset. I had looked at a map and I'd gotten it all wrong. Anyways, had we gotten to Peyton Arum, gotten off the boat, grabbed an Uber, or we thought we were gonna to walk to the Airbnb, we would have had a 35-minute Uber ride back, and that wouldn't have been how this was supposed to all work out. So I had kind of messed up. My plan definitely had some issues. Also, I was identifying some sort of minor to medium repairs that my boat needed, and this, this sort of rough day out in the seas sort of made them worse. So I needed to do some repairs sometime. We found ourselves tied up in Matapoiset, where the storm rages, but where I could get onto the boat and do the repairs I needed, and we had a comfortable Airbnb along the way. So we, we were, finally realized that God's plan was better than what we had worked so hard and prayed diligently for. But we only saw it in hindsight. So here's a, a pretty common question, Is like, here's another common question, not just why, don't, why doesn't God answer our prayers, but why does God allow suffering? It's clear to us that there's suffering all over the world, there's suffering in our own lives, whether it's in our, in our bodies or in our situation, there's suffering in the world, there's war, there's hunger, disease, Is injustice. It wasn't initially meant to be this way, but after the fall of man, sin entered the world and suffering came in along with it. Tim Keller has written and spoken at lengths about this question of why God allows suffering. And his calm wisdom seems to place this confusing question into an eternal context that makes sense. Simply put, God is working things out for his glory and for your good. And if we believe that, let's ask ourselves, how do we demonstrate our belief in prayer? Do we run to it when we suffer, or do we rely on ourselves? As Christ followers, we understand that God is great, and that we are not God. This should allow us to move into a state of humility and admit that perhaps God knows something that we don't about our future. Now, it's hard to sort of get there in your in your heart to really feel good about having prayers that don't get answered the way you want or having suffering in your life and saying, well, God's got this. That's hard to really come warm in your heart. It's hard to let our vision of God's unanswered prayers go away. We can identify that the difference between our great and majestic God, creator of all things, and our own humble, short-sighted desires is pretty huge. So in your head, Maybe you can get on the same page with me. Here's an example in Psalm 11. Counselors came to King David, and they said that there were assassins that wanted to kill him and that he must flee. They were just outside the castle gates. The palace foundations were crumbling. They wanted him to run away, but he refused to panic. And he explains why he did so in Psalm 11, verses 3 and 4. It says... If the foundations were destroyed, what could the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Verse 3 tells us that everything is going wrong. The enemy's at the gate and the foundations are being destroyed. What should we do? There's suffering coming right on the horizon. But remember that the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. The throne is infinitely far away in heaven. We can't get there from here. But the temple was with these Israelites. The temple was on earth. The temple was how the ancient followers had fellowship with God. But they couldn't enter the temple, only the high priest could do that, and only once a year. So what about today? God's heaven, God is still in heaven and it's infinitely far away from us. But the temple is here. The temple is still the way that you can approach God. And the temple is Jesus, the bridge to God, and the way we have fellowship with God. You recall at the time of his crucifixion that in the temple, the veil was torn from top to bottom. And this meant that you could now enter in. You didn't have to be the high priest anymore. You could enter in and come face to face and have a relationship with him. So when everything is going wrong and you want to panic, this verse reminds us to humble ourselves as a child, admit that there's things God knows that we do not know. And if there is an all-knowing good God, he probably has a good reason for for not stopping suffering. God is in control and God has a plan. This reminded me of, uh, I'm going to, I have a brand new phone and I want to bring something up here. Um, because it's lyrics to one of my favorite songs. Anyone know Mercy Me, the band? I want to have a Mercy Me party at my house. We'll just sit there and we'll sing all the songs. There's sad songs, there's happy dance songs, but they do a song called Even If, and some of the lyrics are pretty powerful to me. the, the, The singer says, they say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing. A little faith is all I have right now. But God, when you choose to leave mountains unmoved, oh, give me the strength to be able to sing, it is well with my soul. So even when you're praying for mountains to be moved in your life and it doesn't happen, please, God, give us the strength to say, you are great, it is well with my soul. Now, wouldn't it be helpful if in addition to this powerful God in heaven who has our best interests in mind, and he's dealing with all the details of the universe to begin with and establishing plans for our future, we had a God on earth that could associate with our suffering, a God that could honestly look at you and say, I know how you feel. Well, we do. Jesus. Jesus came to earth as a man, and he suffered hunger, temptation, persecution, torture, crucifixion. He suffered here on earth. There's a poem by a man named Edward Shilito. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. He wrote this poem, and in it, he's speaking directly to Jesus. And some of the words are, well, he's talking about other gods that people turn to, Buddha and others. And they turn to them to worship, but they are different from the one true God. So in this poem, the poet is speaking to Jesus, and he says... The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a god has wounds, but thou alone. God wasn't, he didn't come in on a horse with an army behind him. He came in on a donkey, and then he stumbled to Calvary, dragging a cross. He was wounded. Other gods came in, in in their teachings, majestic and mighty. Christianity is the only religion that has a God that came and involved himself in our suffering. So we have a God that knows the plans he he has for us, but this same God knows suffering. How should we respond to that? Let's take a look at today's reading, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. So what should we do when we're suffering? We should pray. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, I'm looking for relief from my suffering. The relief may not always be the best thing for me. It could draw me into sin, but prayer draws me to God. Prayer is a relational Communication between you and God one on one, and you're talking about your suffering. You're able to tell Him how you feel, and your prayers are always welcomed by God. They are described in Scripture as a pleasing aroma. In Psalm 141, it says, Let my prayers be counted as incense before you, and the lifting of my hands as an evening sacrifice. But here's another reason to pray Satan hates prayer. An old preacher named Samuel Chadwick wrote this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, he mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. A similar view of Satan's opinion about prayer comes from letter four of the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, different C.S. The Screwtape Letters are an allegory about the nature of temptation. And the story is told through the letters from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, Wormwood, a demon charged with luring the soul of the patient. We're the patient, by the way, onto Satan's path. Letter four in the Screwtape Letters is all about prayer, and here's a summary of it. It is best to keep the patient, that's me, from praying at all. But if the patient does pray, Wormwood should see to it that he invents his own prayers. His prayers should be more like a, oh, a general mood than an act of concentrated meditation. Of course, we know that prayer is important for so many reasons. We're commanded to pray. We draw closer to God in prayer. We communicate with God in prayer. We open our dearest needs, concerns, and confessions through prayer. Prayer should be offered in a God-centric way, not a self-centric way. And prayer should embody a God-centered trust and a faith that, in fact, our Heavenly Father knows best. So if you're suffering, you should pray. Suffering can come in many forms. It can be physical. It can be emotional. It can be relational. You're not meant to suffer in isolation. If you feel down, damaged, discouraged, you should pray. And you should gather around your community group, your church, your family, and be in prayer together. Verse four says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, if you did not grow up in church or if, you were from a new, if you're new to Christianity, verse 14 seems maybe a little odd to you. From an outsider, it might be look, looking at it as sort of mystical or cultish. And there are many times in many churches where this extra biblical meaning has been placed on these concepts. But let's see what James says about prayer of the elders and the anointing with oil. This is such an interesting verse for a number of reasons. The idea of church leaders gathering with someone who is sick, praying and anointing them with oil should not be a foreign concept or one that causes us to roll our eyes. Here's a couple of thoughts. I've had the opportunity to serve other church members in this way where we get to approach and pray over them and lay hands on them and anoint them with oil. It's a time where it's solemn it's a time where it's anxious, but it's also a time where everyone is involved the sick person, the elders, the family can come together and offer faithful prayer to God for healing and wholeness. Does it work? Yes. but perhaps not the way we think it should. Not always in a time frame when we think it should where you can connect easily God's healing with the activity of the prayer and the anointing. One of my favorite preachers is named Alistair Begg. He's a Scottish preacher, but he's been 30 years in Cleveland, Ohio, leading a church there. A couple of years ago, he had a medical issue. He went, he was scheduled for surgery, and the night before he had surgery, he called his elders to his house asked them to pray and anoint him with oil. And they came and they prayed, and they anointed him with oil. The next day, he went to the hospital, he had surgery, he was cured. So people come to them and say, they ask him, well, who healed you? And he says, God did. And they say, well, how? And he's like, as he chose. God could have healed him without the surgery. God chose to heal him with the surgery. We don't know God's plans, but they can encompass that. This verse tells us a few things. It tells us that the church is involved, Call the elders. It tells us that you're in a church community. It talks about church membership. It talks about the elders themselves. The elders are responsible to the people, but they're also responsible for the people, and they must give an account. It involves the sick person. Now, the word sick, I, would, I always thought this meant the person has a medical condition. But sick, the way it's used in this scripture, actually means a word that's more defined as without strength. So yes, you could be medically sick and be lacking in strength, but you could be emotionally sick or spiritually sick and lacking in strength. So who's involved? The church is involved. The elders are involved. The sick person is involved. The sickness is there. The sick person takes the initiative, though. It says, if you are sick, call the elders. It doesn't say, elders, search out the sick. So it's, it's encouraging you to take the initiative and reach out for prayer and reach out for anointing. It also seems to be done in the privacy of a home, or facility like a church, all right? It's like the elders came to the sick person, which infers to me that they came to his house or he was in church and they came to him in church. Now, the anointing with oil, let's talk about that a little bit. There's examples in the Bible, throughout the Bible, where where people were anointed with oil either to sort of consecrate them for service or for, for healing of brokenness. And they sometimes not only anointed with oil, but with wine. Um, you remember the story of the Good Samaritan in the Book of Luke, where a Samaritan came upon a, a mugging victim, basically, and he, he brought him to a, a lodging place and he anointed him with oil and wine. And he said to the to the, the landlord, take care of this man and I'll pay for any additional costs upon my return. So. Pouring oil and wine onto a sick person or a wound is historic and it's, it goes back and it's biblical. It, it may refer to rituals done in the past. It may, it may be trying to conjure up perceived medicinal properties of these elements. It may even be soothing. It might feel good to have oil on, a, on a, an injured limb. It's also symbolic. And today, in the church, we view the anointing with oil by the elders as a symbolic representation of the healing presence of the God of God's Holy Spirit. The oil is not magical. It's not supernatural. It's not special oil. And because of that, it's not the oil that does the healing. It's the Lord. So my main point today is that, is all prayer answered? Yes. Is all prayer answered the way we want it to? No, not the way we envisioned. We didn't get to Pegnarum where we wanted to. Now, before you think, oh, that stinks, why me? Why, why are my prayers not answered the way I want them to be? Well. Think about it for a second. You are in good company. God doesn't always instantly heal or even heal based on the prayer of the believers. Consider Paul's prayer to remove this thorn from my flesh in 2 Corinthians. But God said, My grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, who else might not have had their prayers answered the way they wanted? Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, Father, can you remove this cup? He was looking at his crucifixion and saying, can you remove this cup? But then he said, but not my will, but thine be done. And we know that the cup was not removed, all for a greater plan. Now, I have prayers in my life that have not been answered in the way I want them to be. How do I handle that? What should I do? Pray and have faith that the covenant promises of God will be fulfilled. I believe that my joys in heaven will be unique to the discovery of the answers to my prayers on earth, because God will fulfill his promises. But I may need to wait until I'm there to see and understand. Verse 15 says, and the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, our scripture uses that term sick, which isn't always medically sick or have a medical condition or be a physical illness. It can be referring to brokenness of spirit or struggles with temptation and sin. A prayer of faith includes the belief that healing can take place and a belief in the sovereignty of God's will. And it's not always God's will to affect immediate healing. Now, I'm going to skip verse 16 and come back to it in a little bit, but I want to talk about verse 17, which talks about the prophet Elijah. Verse 17 reads, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is an interesting story, and I went back, and that reminded me that I have some confession to make to you right here and right now. I really like, as a sort of a little vice of mine, I like biblical taunting. Anybody else out there? Here's what I mean. Let's look in the book of Job. Here's an example of God explaining, I think actually taunting Job and his friends. Job, as you recall, is on an emotional roller coaster. He has gone through a lot. It's Basically, life has sort of turned into injustice for Job. And they, his friends try to tell him that his, his suffering must be because of some past sin. But Job says, no, I, have, I have, don't have past sin. And he, when he gets so upset, he finally proclaims his innocence and demands an explanation directly from God. In Job 31, he says, oh, that I had one to hear me. Here's my signature, let the Almighty answer me. I mean, God can handle when you're angry. He's big enough for that, but he was saying, let you answer me, God. I've done nothing wrong, and look at all of my suffering. But in the book of Job, God does some serious taunting. He calls out Job, and in doing so, calls us out as well for our hubris and misplaced confidence. God shows up in Job 38, and here's just a few examples. It goes on. Verse 2, he says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Verse four, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? It's poetic, but he's talking about the universe and all the the mystery of creation and planets and, 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 and sunsets and sunrises and the weather. On verse 19, he goes on, he says, where is the way to the dwelling of light and where is the place of darkness? Very cosmic stuff. That you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths of its throne. You know, for you were born then and the days of your days, the days of your life is great, which is not true. This is real sarcasm. It's kind of nice to see someone be told. Job and his friends were making assumptions about God. They assumed their view of justice would exactly match God's view of justice. As if to say that if it didn't match up, that God's view was somehow lacking. Job himself even arrived at the misconception that he had built up enough perspective in his life to allow him to claim equal viewpoints with God. God put them in their place, simply telling them that because the world and the universe was so complex and that God had his finger on every detail of it and that they did not have a universal vantage point to be even in the conversation. Justice in a world like this is extremely complex. It's never black and white. The book of Job doesn't explain why bad things happen to good people, but it does invite us to trust God's wisdom when we encounter suffering. Now, Job was actually a good guy. For the most part, he was pretty innocent. But Tim Keller tells us Jesus is the ultimate Job, the only truly innocent sufferer. Jesus was without sin, a spotless lamb, but he was a sacrificial spotless lamb. He suffered and was sacrificed for our sins. Was that injustice or God's plan? Now, our prophet Elijah who prayed for no rain and then brought the rain. Let's look at that. In verse 17, it recalls that Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and then then he prayed that it would rain. So let's revisit that. He was in the land of Ahab, and Ahab was surrounded by his own prophets who worshiped other gods, including the god named Baal. Now, they had this debate going on as to whose god was greater. Was it Baal or Elijah's god? In order to prove whose God was greater, Elijah and Ahab agreed to each sacrifice a bull on an altar with firewood and kindling all around. But they were not to put fire to the altar, they were to call on their respective gods to put fire from on high to the sacrifice. So here's here's where Elijah taunts the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he's musing or he's relieving himself or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Well, this went on all day, and Ahab and the prophets of Baal were pretty disappointed in their God, and I'm guessing pretty humiliated. But that's just one side of the story. How is Elijah now to show how great his God was? First, he rebuilt the altar, and he dug a deep trench around it, and he laid out the firewood, and he put his bull on top of the altar and the firewood, and then he had the people get four big jugs of water. And he had to pour the water all over the bull and the altar. And he had them do it a second time. And he had them doing a third time. And there was a trench around the altar, and the trench was full of water. Everything was so fully drenched and soaking wet. And then at that time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, "'O Lord God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel, "'let it be known this day that you are God in Israel "'and that in your servant "'and that I have done all these things at your word. "'Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know "'that you, O Lord, are God "'and that you have turned their hearts back.' "'Then the fire of the Lord fell, "'consumed the burnt offering and the wood "'and the stones and the dust "'and licked up the water that was in the trench.' And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Notice it wasn't Elijah's power that did this. But it was God's power and Elijah's faith. Now let's go back to verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. In verse 19, together, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. John, this is talking about confession and redemption. John Piper writes about confession. He talks that confession must be honest and truthful, purity of heart, It involves admission and confession of sin to appropriate people in our lives. And this will result in physical and spiritual health. I want to read from Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. This is David talking about confession. Psalm 32 Verses, I'm going to start at verses 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. But when I kept silent, meaning when I'm not confessing, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dark, dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Have you ever held, held that sin inside and not confessed? And it says here, your bones dried up, your, your, your body groans, you're carrying a weight. And when you confess, that weight is relieved, it's removed, and God is not holding that against you. We all wander from the truth. The only one who didn't was Jesus. But God knew we would wander and lose our way, and he created a plan to deal with it. It's called the church. We aspire to live in a gospel culture where we help each other follow Jesus. We meet together, we dine together, we sing together, we even party and go sledding and do recreation together, and we pray together. One reason we pray together is so that we can encourage one another and so that we can be encouraged towards the gospel. This is why when you are sick, you should call the elders to pray over you. And sickness is brokenness. Your sickness doesn't need to be medical, but it may be a brokenness of spirit or broken heart or you may be struggling with temptation or sin. Don't struggle alone. Call the elders to pray over you. I want to wrap up. This is my conclusion. First point, God always answers faithful prayer. God loves you and cares for you. He loves you so much that he didn't even withhold his son, Jesus Christ, so that through his death and resurrection, you can become an adopted child of God. And as sons and daughters of God, we humbly place our faith in his plans, not our own. Isaiah 55 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Second point. Jesus knows this suffering. He knows that our suffering is real. In our suffering, know that Jesus has been there. He suffered on the cross when he was a sacrificial payment for our sins. Only a perfect, blameless sacrifice could pay for our sins. Here's the thing. Jesus paid a debt. He didn't owe. Because you have a debt you can't pay. Last point, God is holy. God can't be in the presence of sin. Our sin separates us from God, but at the intersection of faithful prayer and confession, and faith in Jesus Christ, you will find forgiveness for sin. Let's pray.